Three days later, he will rise. This is God's word. Please be seated. For the next couple of minutes, we're going to uh, be squeezing the last week of Jesus' life into uh, this, this final message on the life of Jesus before we move into Acts uh, next Sunday morning. And I want to begin with a quote from Philip Yancey's book, The Jesus I Never Knew. He writes in this section called The God-Man, It would be easier, I sometimes think, if God has given us a set of ideas to mull over and kick around and decide whether to accept or reject. He did not. He gave us Himself in the form of a person. Jesus saves, announced the bumper stickers. Imagine how ridiculous it would sound if you substituted Socrates or Napoleon or Marx. The Buddha gave His disciples permission to forget Him as long as they honored His teaching and followed His path. Plato said something similar of Socrates. Jesus, though, pointed to Himself and said, I am the way. End of quote. Father, as we, we think about the last week of your son's life before the crucifixion, we, we pray, Father, that our worship tonight and our meditation on Scripture and, and our prayers have prepared us to, to think very deeply on these texts that describe how our world changed forever and ever. And how we have been, even 2,000 years later, the recipients of its power. The power, your power, unto salvation. We're grateful, Father, for the, the great price that you paid in order to save people like us. And while we uh, try to fathom the depths of that love and, and will never ever quite make it, at least in this life, what we do pick up, Father, is that our lives are important. And our lives have, have meaning, not just in the fact that You have created us, but that You have given us opportunity to be created anew, to be reborn into conformity image of Your Son, Jesus. And so we pray in these next few moments, Father, as, as we think about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus and the events leading up to it, that last week of His life in Jerusalem before the cross, we're asking, especially with a contrite and, and humble heart, that You will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. Please do this, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Gospels uh, spent a lot of time on, on this last week of Jesus' life. And the last week of Jesus' life is incredibly eventful and it's in many ways incredibly complicated in all of the events as they are tied together leading to His, his death on the cross and three days later His resurrection. And it if there is at least one way, and there's going to be several that we're going to look at tonight, one of the ways that we would describe that last week is that it was a week of revelation and judgment. The prophet Zechariah, you'll remember, had foretold a few centuries earlier that the Messiah King would enter Jerusalem not as a triumphant military conqueror, but as a lowly prince of peace. 
That great passage in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 was a prophecy that, that the people during this period of time embraced very tightly. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, Zechariah said. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See? Your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The raising of Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, uh, just outside the, uh, there on the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem in John chapter 11. And then the healing of blind Bartimaeus in Jericho in Luke 18 are two events that are really fresh in the minds of the people. And there's growing excitement in the air, especially as Passover is getting near, that the Messiah is about to come. The Messiah is going to reveal Himself. And Jesus and His disciples are near Bethphage, and they're near Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And while they're kind of in that area between those two villages, Jesus sends two of His disciples into a village and gives them instructions about a colt. He tells them that if anyone asks, you tell them that the Lord needs it and will send it back shortly. They do as He instructs, and sure enough, there is, there's the animals there just as He has instructed. And they bring a donkey and a colt to Jesus. And while all of the people begin to see what's happening, a very large crowd begins to, to crowd around Him. And they begin to spread their cloaks on the road. And they begin to cut branches from the field and lay it out there on the road. Basically, all of that symbolizing a red carpet entrance for Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. And as He makes His way down that path, down the Mount of Olives, across the bridge, over the Kidron Valley, into the, guard, the, uh, the Golden Gate, they're all crying out, Hosanna! Save! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now the interesting thing here is that Jesus does not tell the people to stop, but accepts the declaration of who he is. All through the Gospels, when he heals somebody, they want to say, oh, you're the Messiah, you're the one, you're the one, you're the one. And there is this messianic reticence, as the academics call it, where Jesus is sort of trying to hold back, uh, to, 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 to at least stem back the tide of misperceptions about him. That he can be solely defined by, by the, the, the giving of bread and fish, or the healing of the sick, or giving sight to the blind or even raising people from the dead. He holds that at arm's length. But now He doesn't. He's revealing Himself as the Messiah. But not everyone is quite so jubilant. In John's telling of the story, as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem there from the east side, just as He's about to cross the, the, uh, the Mount of Olives and go into the, the city of Jerusalem, He begins to weep. He begins to weep. And he just sort of says out loud, if, if you, even you, speaking to Jerusalem, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. If only you had known. And then in John's Gospel, he speaks of the great destruction of the people in the city in the decades to come in AD 70. It would not be the last time that he mentions the, the destruction of Jerusalem that's going to come at the hands of the Romans in AD 70. But during this period of time, there had been some ideas tossed around by the rabbis about how the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. If the Messiah had come by the clouds, as described by Daniel, then He would come as a judge of the nations that had been persecuting in Israel. And this is what almost, at least, of the religious leaders had been hoping for. But if He had come according to Zechariah, it would come as a judgment of Israel. And here is Jesus coming according to the Zechariah passage. And the people are proclaiming Him to be the Messiah. And all of those around are understanding exactly what this means. And the Pharisees do not like it one bit. 
And so in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they just don't like what's being said. And they say to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They want, it. They want Him to stop it. They don't want this kind of Messiah. But Jesus replied, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Early the next morning, Jesus is headed back to Jerusalem when He spots a fig tree. It's sort of an enigmatic story, difficult to understand. For a lot of people, it doesn't seem very fair. But Jesus has come to this tree while hungry and finds no fruit on it because it was not the time for figs. Or, in other words, He comes to it hungering at a time when it's impossible for it to bear fruit. And He pronounces a curse on it. And He withers that tree when He says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. The point is that it was impossible, it was as impossible for Judaism in the day of Christ as it was practiced by the scribes and Pharisees to bear fruit in worship and obedience to God as it was for this fig tree to bear fruit. It was a decisive pronouncement and declaration of judgment on Judaism as it was being practiced by the scribes and the Pharisees. And right on the heels of the withering of this tree is the second cleansing of the temple Jesus entered the temple area. He begins to drive out the money changers and the benches of those that are selling the doves. And it's a controversial act, as you can imagine. It seems, you know, for those looking for a political cause, it even looks political. But it's really a controversial act in the middle of a controversial practice. Now, for years and years and years and years, the exchanging of money and the buying of sacrificial victims had been done on the Mount of Olives. There were four places up on the Mount of Olives where you could go after you had traveled a long distance and were needing an animal for sacrifice or to exchange coins for the temple tax or whatever it is that you might, might need for worshiping God there in the temple, Jerusalem. I mean, you're traveling for a long distance and nobody really wanted to take their own animal because you travel 60, 70 miles with an animal, chances are it's going to become blemished on the way. And so up on the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem, just across the Kidron Valley on the, on the east side, there were these four licensed places that historically the Jewish people had been able to buy their sacrificial victims and exchange the coins. But in the annals of, of Annas, Annas the high priest, there are these uh, uh, words recorded that talk about how he began to set up a, a, um, a, a rival market in the temple precincts in order for the money to come to him rather than for it to go to those that were doing it out on the Mount of Olives. And what happened is that, is that as these people were bringing animals into the, into the temple area, if they had not been bought in the area up where it was being sold in the temple, then the danger was that those priests would declare that animal to be unclean. So it was really forcing the people to buy all of their animals right there for that money to be pocketed by Annas. That's why Jesus called it a den of robbers, quoting Isaiah chapter 56. And all of a sudden, the place of prayer and worship of God is being distorted. Worship is not a solemn event, but it's divisive and it's, it's full of anger as people feel that they've been cheated and extorted out of their money. But Jesus' presence in the temple area changes all of that as He begins to bring healing to people's lives. The blind and the lame are healed. And He teaches the people what, what, what true obedience and relationship to God is all about. And at this point, the chief priests and the teachers look for a way to kill Him. They make no bones about it. We've got to get rid of Him. But they fear the crowd because Jesus right now is very popular with those crowds. 
So it was not just a week of revelation and a week of judgment. It's also a week of rejection. The religious leaders are going to come and they're going to challenge Him. They want to discredit Him. They'd really like to kill Him. But, they're, but at least right now, they want to discredit Him, diminish His status in the eyes of the people. They ask Him, by what authority are you doing this? What makes you think you have any any authority to do this? Now, they don't really care for an answer. They've already decided to kill Him. And Jesus point blank confronts this question with a couple of parables. Jesus says, you know, there was a man who had two sons. And one morning he asked one son to go out to the field. Son says no, but then later changes his mind and goes out into the field and works. He goes to a second son and makes the same request. And the son says, okay. But then later on changes his mind and says, nope, I'm not going to go. And Jesus asks a question. Who did the will of their father? The first they answer. And Jesus says, right. He says, the first they answer. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't mince words when he followed that with a second parable about this very rich landowner who owned a field with a vineyard. And it was kind of a deal where he set up this, this contract with the tenant farmers. And when the harvest would come, they would pay him a percentage of the harvest and everything's square. And so the harvest time comes, he sends the servants to collect what is owed him. And the tenants begin to beat up his servants and they send them away empty handed. They even kill one. Well, this owner of, of the vineyard says, well, there must be some kind of mistake. So he sends more and more and more servants and they do the same thing. They're all treated the same way. Finally, believing that they will listen to his son, he sends his son. And he says, oh, they'll listen to him. Wrong. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, isn't it interesting that, that Jesus says they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. They didn't kill him in the vineyard. They threw him out of the vineyard. It's kind of interesting. It, it just, it's, again, it's a, it's a, it's a level of, of thinking in this parable telling that Jesus is trying to get them to drop down into. They, they are willing to live their lives according to the law. You can't defile the vineyard by having a dead body in it. You've got to throw him out of the vineyard and kill him first. A lot of integrity when it comes to murder. The owner then comes. And Jesus says He brings a wretched end to those wretched people. And then Jesus quotes the most popular psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 118. He says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What you're rejecting has actually become the most important stone and the foundation of everything. And the Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. They'll even try to trap him with a question about paying taxes to the Romans. They're going to get him in Dutch with the Romans. If he says, you know, you're not going to pay taxes to the Romans. They say, you know, should we pay these taxes? What do you think? He says, bring me a coin. And what they're trying to do is trap him with the Romans. If he is, you know, if, if he's going to side with, with the Jewish people, with the Hebrews, he's going to say, don't pay that. Or if he says, do pay it then he's going to get himself in trouble with all of those zealots and all of those anti-Roman people in, in the Jewish nation. And so he says to him, bring me that coin. And whose image is it? And they go, Caesar's. And he says to them, you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and you give to God what belongs to Whose image is on the coin? Caesar. And whose image are we made? 
God. The Sadducees right after that come with him, come at him with a question about the resurrection. They're just snickering under their breath. You know, Jesus, here's this woman, and she doesn't have any children. She's married, husband dies, no children. She goes through a whole series of all of his brothers. They all die. It's all ever at marriage. And they don't believe in the, the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. And so they pose this question. Here's this woman who dies. She's married all of these brothers. There's no children. But at the resurrection, they don't even believe in it. But they think they've trapped him in the, in the foolishness of his own theology. This foolishness of the resurrection theology. Whose wife will she be? And Jesus point blank says, here's the deal. You don't understand the power of God. And you do not know the Scriptures. What they do not understand is that their rejection of Him will lead to God rejecting them. This sort of culminates in what the scholars call the Olivet Discourse. It's found in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke chapter 21. Jesus and His disciples are walking around Jerusalem and it's beginning to turn hostile. The Sadducees are after Him. The Herodians are after Him. The scribes are after Him. The Pharisees, the, 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 the chief priests, everybody is after Him. And Jesus and His disciples are walking among the magnificent buildings of Jerusalem. It can only, I mean, in our, in our mind's eye, we can only imagine the greatness of this city. Herod was a master architect. And he spent lots of time and lots of resources, lots of money, lots of effort, sweat, blood, uh, all of this to build a great nation. And Jerusalem was a great city. And the disciples, they're, 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 they're country folk. They're country folk. They're from, they're from Galilee. They're from the sticks. They've come to the big city. They're walking around. What great stones and magnificent buildings. Jesus says, you know, a day's coming in which not one stone is going to be left on top of another. They're going to be thrown down. Everything destroyed. And you can only imagine what that means when they hear that the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. They, they just think that this is the end of the world as they know it. And two questions pop up. I mean, what, you know, when will this happen? And what will be the signs of your return? And Jesus says that it's, it's going to be a terrible time that's going to be coming in your future. This generation is not going to pass away until they see these things. Adversity is going to come upon the people of Jerusalem like they have never known before. It will be awful. If God did not bring a stop to it, no one would be saved. There are going to be false prophets that are going to come up. And there are false messiahs. Do not believe them. Do not believe them. But stand firm. Do not deny Jesus, though the persecution is severe. Even though people are, 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 are turning their back on their faith and betraying people to save their lives and hating one another, you stand firm and know that by God's power, the Gospel is going to be preached even as a time like this. Now that's, that's Matthew's accounting of it over in Luke chapter 20, verse 21. Luke includes this little statement about when the armies are surrounding Jerusalem. And Jesus says, when you see that, when you see the army surrounding Jerusalem, if you're up on a rooftop, don't go inside and grab your stuff. You need to leave now. He says, you may be out of the field. You got, you've got to go. You've got to get out of Dodge. When you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, flee. And just a couple of decades down the road, Vespasian is going to come with his armies. And then Galba dies back in Rome. Vespasian has to go back. And his son Titus takes over. And it is a terrible destruction of Jerusalem. 
And all of this, as Jesus is talking about it, is just... It, it, just, it just seems so out there. How can it be real? You're the Messiah. And then in a language that, that people confuse, even to this day with the second coming, Jesus pronounces God's judgment on Israel. He uses the Old Testament judgment prophetic language of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel and Joel. And He says, this will be a time when the sun is going to be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the people of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. When they heard that, they didn't think second coming. When they heard that, they thought Old Testament prophecy of God's judgment being declared on the nations, but now it's being declared on Jerusalem. And that kind of language, that apocalyptic language of the Old Testament, it was a language that was used to, 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 to show that God was powerful and that He was mighty and that He was so mighty He could ride on the clouds and His sign could be seen in, in, in the sky. It was, it was a time in which God was so powerful that none of His true people are going to be lost. But when judgment comes on these nations, it's now being used to describe what's going to happen in God's eye and God's power to Jerusalem. And it's a profoundly grievous moment in the history of the world. But right in the middle of the week, right in the middle of the week, an expert in the law comes and asks, Jesus... Teacher, there's over 400 commandments. There's 400 pieces of law in the Old Testament and Torah. What's it all boiled down to? And Jesus looks him right in the eye and says, here it is. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6. He says, you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. You ever thought about what it meant to love God with all your heart? Or to love God with all of, all of your mind? Or to love God with all of your strength, with your body? Years ago, flying on El Al Airlines to, to Israel, we take off from uh, JFK in New York City. And as soon as that airplane, even though you're in airspace that belongs to the United States, as soon as that airplane rises up off the ground one inch, you're now in Israel. And, and as you're flying on that flight, it's filled with, with, uh, with, with all kinds of, 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 of the Jewish sects and all of these, these men with their, their, uh, their, their Talmud and reading it. There comes a point, and usually it's right in the middle of watching the movie on the plane where it comes time for prayer. And they all stand up and they begin to pray. And the stewardesses have to move them to the back of the plane because the, the other folk are trying to watch the movie and you wonder, is this plane going to start shimmy in the back when you've got 50 Hasidic and Sephardic Jews in the back you know, loving God and praying to God with their body by moving it? Is that what he meant? And how do you love God with all of your soul? But he doesn't stop there. He says, there's a second that's like that. And that's when you love your neighbor as yourself. And this fellow looks at Jesus and says, well said. That's it. And Jesus looks at him and says, the kingdom of God is near you. Well, it all comes down to this. 
A week of culmination. Eventually, the end of the week comes. It's time for Jesus' crucifixion. It comes. It's the time of the Passover. It's the time when, as John said three years prior, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world for that Lamb to be crucified. And Jesus gathers in an upper room to eat the Passover with His disciples. In Luke chapter 22, that's John 13, in Luke chapter 22, the disciples are kind of scuffling with each other over who's going to be the greatest and who's going to be seated where, and it's who's going to be the greatest among them. And you go back to John 13, and Jesus knows that it's, it, it's time. And He looks at those, those men. And He just loves them. And He leaves His place of honor. He leaves His place of glory at that triclinium, that, that U-shaped table. And He takes on the role of a servant when He strips down to just a towel around His waist and He bends down and begins to wash the feet of the disciples and acts so menial, menial and so, so disgusting that, that in many parts of the world, only, only the, the, the most profoundly low-class slave could do it. But he leaves his place of honor and takes on the role of a servant and becomes humble when he bows down before them and washes the grime off of their feet. Well, you know the story. Peter doesn't get it. He says, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, that's what you think, big boy. If I don't, you have no part in me. And he says, then just don't wash my feet. Wash everything. And Jesus says, you still don't get it. But you will. And he even makes a final appeal to Judas. He tells them that he's giving them this example for them to follow. That it's only, it is the only way to operate in the kingdom of God. Counting others better than yourself. He institutes the Lord's Supper, explains its significance as a new covenant is being forged and established and wrought by His death. But the time now is beginning to wind down very quickly. Jesus is teaching and leading and leading and teaching. I will never deny you, one says. Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. If you ever want a moment, one of the most sobering moments in Bible study is just to contemplate what it might mean to you for Satan to say your name to God and to ask to sift you like wheat. But he says, I, I, I've prayed for you. I'll never deny you. Peter, you'll deny me three times before the cock crows. He tells them, don't fear. Trust God. Believe in God. Believe in me. I'm going away, but I'll come back and I'll get you. In God's room, there are many rooms. They understand the language. We don't. It's the language of a wedding. When the groom goes off after the wedding has, has, has taken place, to build that room onto his father's house where he will come back, get his wife maybe a year later, and take her to live with him in his father's house. He says, at God's house, there are many rooms. He says, if you love me, you'll do what I command. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit as a counselor. He will lead you into truth. He tells them that the prince of the world is coming. 
but that He has no hold on me. And then I think what is one of the most tender moments in all of this, not the only one, but one of the most tender, after all of this, they sing together. They sing a hymn together. They make their way out of the upper room. They go into the Garden of Gethsemane. They cross that Kidron Valley. Go into the garden. Jesus begins to pray and to pray and to pray for His disciples. He asks them to pray with Him. They fall asleep. In their culture, when they fell asleep after the, the, the meal that they had just shared, the falling of asleep means that they have completely broken fellowship with Him. The fellowship that was forged by that meal has been broken when they have fallen asleep. Jesus, in so many respects, is on His own at this point. The sweat becomes to fall from His forehead and from His face and neck. It's got blood in it. He prays to God to let this cup pass. It's at this point that He is looking into the furnace. It's night. When you go into the Garden of Gethsemane, even today, there's kind of one way in and one way out, and it's surrounded by trees, surrounded by, 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 by forest. Even more so then. It's night. He's looking into the furnace. He sees what's ahead of Him. He could have left. But He prays, not my will, but Yours angel comes and comforts him and then torches on the hillside. And here they come. He is betrayed by a kiss. He is betrayed by a kiss from Judas. Is there no greater lie in literature? They step in to take him, but Peter has said, I'll never deny him. He takes a sword. A sword appears from someplace. He swings. He takes off the ear of a servant, a guy by the name of Malchus. And Jesus says, enough. Stop that. Do you not think that I have all of these angels at my, my beck and call? He says, no. And He heals the servant. And they all see a miracle take place right there in front of them. But do they repent? No. Jesus is taken to Annas. He's struck on the face. Peter has denied Him three times. He's taken to Caiaphas. It's just a travesty. Of justice. They've decided that they're going to kill him. There's a formal condemnation of the Christ. He's taken to Pilate, then he's taken to Herod Antipas, then he's finally back to Pilate, and Pilate gets it. Pilate understands this is a terrible case. His wife even had a dream about it. He's beginning to see that there was some wisdom in that dream. This needs to be dismissed. Jesus is innocent. This is just a jealousy thing. But the people who declared him a Messiah the Sunday before now clamor for the release of Barabbas, a murder. How ironic. That now they are turning over their Prince of Peace for a murderer. And the coup de grace is when they say, this guy said he was a king. We have no one but Caesar. And Jesus by this time has just been beat to a pulp. He has been beaten within an inch of His life. He will pay for our sins. Not just with His death, but He will suffer for our sins. And He's led to the place of crucifixion. And there they crucified Him. 
the most sensitive man who ever lived. And Pilate has king of the Jews written in a couple of different languages on a sign tacked to the top of the cross. The Jews are upset with that. He says, I've written what I've written. And there for some hours, Jesus is on the cross suffering. And finally and mercifully, He breathes His last. And there is darkness and an earthquake. And the temple of the curtain is torn in two. And the dead rise and show up in Jerusalem. And a Roman centurion says, Man, oh man, this was surely the Son of God. And I think one of the unsung heroes of the New Testament, Nicodemus, and a friend, Joseph of Arimathea, regardless of what the Sanhedrin's going to think and what they're going to say, they go publicly in front of everyone, have the body taken down and placed in the tomb and prepared, and the tomb is sealed. And then three days later, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And that's where we'll pick up next week as we jump into Acts. The hardest thing about preaching is to feel that you do justice, which you know is impossible, to the telling of this story. Of, of, of trying to blend together all, all of the events in such a way that they are coherent because they are complicated, but they're all tied together. They all have such profound, significant meaning. And to do it in such a way that it drives us deeper and deeper and deeper into humility on our knees, a contrite and broken heart, to where we exclaim, Lord! I think that for, for the rest of our lives... These are, these are the events that we think about when it comes to, to how we as human beings see a vision of our future as human beings. As Paul would say in, in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, conform to His image. As Paul would say in another place, to, to know His suffering and to participate in, in His death and, 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 and somehow attain to the resurrection. To be a person so completely transformed, not just by the story, but the truth of the story. And the impact of that truth of the story on our hearts and our souls and our minds and our bodies in such a way that we are radically transformed into a different kind of a human being. Do you think, do I think, for one minute that I was worth what it cost God to save me. That, that, that I was really worth the Son of God to die on the cross? That I'm really worth that? That's why it's a love. That's why it's a love. That as, as hard as we try and as, and as, as long as we, we, we contemplate it, we will never fully fathom it. But it is a love that can penetrate and change us change us in such a way that regardless of what happens to us in this life, as long as we have this, and as long as it is the most preeminent, prominent treasure that we hold in our hands, regardless of what happens to us, there can be joy. There can be peace. Even in the final moments. Because of the way that that love has transformed us. And God's Spirit being put in us as a gift. Well, 
It's time for Jeff to lead us in a song. And I don't know about you, but it's time to worship God again. And and to praise Him and to think clearly, with with clarity, about the, the overwhelming, inimaginable, unimaginable, immeasurable understanding of this act to transform us and to change us for all of eternity, to make us sons and daughters of God, full of inheritance, able to say, Abba, Father, His Spirit testifying to our spirit that He is our Father. It's time to praise God. But at the same time, it's, it's time for us to do business with the truth of the cross, with our own lives. And if there's somebody here tonight that thinks that they need to be making those kinds of changes and knows deep down in their soul that the time has come, then our shepherds are going to be down here at the front to receive you. Come and talk to them as we stand and praise God together.